I think people get trapped in thinking, like imagine it's a blank, we're, we're talking about painting for a second. And they just walk in the room with a bucket of green paint and they sit down and that's all they have. They just, they paint the green on the canvas and then they walk out and they show somebody and the person's like, mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. But it's just because everyone thinks for some reason when it comes to digital ads, they can just get away without being creative. We're living in a time where everyone's just doing the same stuff. So what's great about being creative is you instantly stick out when you create something great because 90% of the market is completely mailing it in on creative. So what I would say is that businesses need to start really going deep on people that are creative thinkers, and we need to hire a lot more of them. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. Nick, did you know that Tapcart apps have generated more than $5 billion in sales for Shopify's fastest growing brands. Everyone from Fashion Nova to Mudwater to our friend Ben at uh, True Classic Tees, uh, Tapcart is powering all of their apps. I didn't realize it was that big, but it does make sense. And I love the examples that you gave because those are, they're either high consumption or high consumable products, or it's apparel where I feel like there's a higher consideration funnel. It makes perfect sense to be using a mobile app in those cases. Yeah, Tapcart's mobile app has a 2.3x higher conversion rate versus the mobile web. And to learn more, go to tapcart.com slash limited. This is it. Last episode of season four of Limited Supply. Ryan, excited to have you on here. You know, I'm a huge fan of True Classic. Uh, we were chatting yesterday. I slacked you. I always wear True Classic joggers and outdoor voices tees. Uh, so I feel like there's, you know, all of the brands that I ever wear, I've gotten on this podcast, which is awesome. <laughs> I'm super excited that you're here. Thank you, man. Happy to be here. Finally excited to talk to the guy that actually does the work, not Ben. <laughs> ben is a workhorse, by the way. Yeah, I know he was I a huge ben, kid. Ben feels like he's cut from special cloth. He is not normal. Dude, he is me on steroids. And he has taken such an unbelievable amount of pressure off of my shoulders when he came on. I mean, it was like night and day for me. Should we start there, Moise? No, I want to start somewhere else, which is, uh, Ryan, we always start with this segment called Guess This Business. And I basically tell Nick a bunch of stats about a business, and he has to guess the name of the business. And now that you're okay. here, this is great, because there's two people who are going to get to guess. Okay, so there's a business that, uh, okay, it's publicly traded. It is worth $5.9 billion. So pub the market cap is $5.9 billion. Levi's. No, okay. It's not Levi's. Icon, I hope Levi's is worth more than that. I thought Levi's was worth eight a while ago. But in any case, the business, it's a brick and mortar store with franchises. It did uh, $936 million in revenue last year, up from $587 million the year before. It's got $368 million in EBITDA, up from $194 million in EBITDA in 2021. Okay, let me tell you about the stores. It's got 2,400 stores. Last year, it had 2,200. So not a ton of growth, 10% growth, like, you know, not 200 stores in growth. Biggest states are Florida and New York. The largest franchisee owns 186 stores. So this isn't Chick-fil-A for two reasons. One, Chick-fil-A is privately traded. And two, Chick-fil-A will only let you have like one or two franchisees. Here, the largest franchisee owns 186 stores. 
35% of franchisees own 10 or more stores. And it costs between $1.7 million and $3.8 million to build out a new store. Each store does about $1.6 to $1.7 million in revenue per year. Nick, don't be Googling things. I think you're Googling things. You're not Googling things. I'm just waiting Nick to answer first so he can get it right and we can... No, no. So you get three questions. Three questions to help... Three narrow. questions? Yeah. Well, this is, this is not a question, but clearly this is a consumable, not apparel. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I'm um, thinking QS. Wait, why would you say it's consumable and not apparel? Because the way you were talking, you were talking about Chick fil A and you were talking about, you were kind of alluding that it is a foodish type thing. So I'm going to take some cues from that, hopefully. Okay. So, two, I would say two things. One is, I don't know any apparel stores that have franchises. True. Uh, so, I don't think it could be apparel. Um, True. But that's the, only hint, that's the only hint I've got there. Could be food, could be a mechanic. <laughs> Ollie mechanics. So I feel like 930 in revenue. This is probably one of the first in a while that the valuation is five times the revenue. Usually it's yes. the other way around. Valuation yes. is a third of the revenue. Yes. This business is actually doing well. Yeah. This definitely not a marketplace. Well. Pretty good margins are EBITDA out of total revenue, which makes me think it's food. Yeah. And also the fact that they grew 200 Kind of aligns with like QSR. My first guess is Wingstop. Uh, great question. I'm not sure. Is Wingstop publicly traded? Wingstop birth store. Uh, no, it's not Wingstop. Okay. How, how, how many years in business? Uh, 1992. Oh, man. Okay. So you will not have heard of this business until the last 10 years. Like in 90, okay. you know, I... Like it's like sweet green. I think sweet green was started like 2017 or 2015 or something, or maybe 2012. No one heard of it until 2017, and then everyone had heard of it. Sort of like that. What's your favorite thing to eat at this place? I didn't say it was a restaurant, so I inject the puns to your question. <laughs> Objection. <laughs> is it more of like a real meal type place, or is it like a snacky type kind of place? It's not a restaurant. Oh, okay. okay. So it is fast food, though. No, it, there's no food served there. That has nothing to do with food. Oh, okay, where would I find this? There are 2,400 stores. The biggest store bases or like the largest number of stores are in Florida. The second largest number of stores are in New York. Um, I'm actually ready for that question. Okay, here's one more hint. Give us a category, at, at least like a, a category. Yeah. Average size of store, this should give it away, is 20,000 square feet. Oh okay. my gosh. So it's huge. Yeah. I'm thinking like a Dwayne Reed or something, but I don't think that lines up with this. That's secret. Yeah. Dwayne Reed is owned by Walmart. Yeah. yeah Dwayne Reed is a franchise. I just can't believe they have that many retail stores and they're so profitable. That just is. Yeah. Well, the franchised, a lot of franchises, right? 2,400 stores, 2,200 are franchised. No. Are you ready? Wait. Right, one more question. One more question. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay. I hit on giving hits. Who is excited to go buy the product at this store? That's a good one. Not necessarily paying, but who's excited about the purchase? Ben from True Classic, Justin Mayers from Kevil and Fire, Sam Parr from The Hustle, me, uh, all of us would be excited to buy. Let me tell you, let me rephrase that. All of us would be excited to buy the category. Uh, you let me get, start giving you some more hints now. 
uh, half their customer base. Is this a gym? Is females. Yes. Okay. Half their customer base is females. Okay. Ready? Here's the reveal. Okay. Ready? Planet Fitness. Oh. The purple. Wow. I thought that was way bigger was than. so far um, off. Damn. Lifetime also I've only seen in New York and Florida. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't seen 2,400 Lifetime, but let me give you a few crazy stats about these guys. Mm-hmm. So first, half their business is female and half is male. Okay. Uh, which I thought was surprising. 17 million. So they have a subscription revenue business because it's a gym. Uh, They have 17 million subscribers to Planet Fitness, which means on average, each store has 7,000 subscribers. Wow. At a gym. Their uh, subscription is $10 for access to one, $25 for access to all of them. Plus you can bring a friend. That is an insanely cheap price. You know, I go to Equinox. I cannot bring a friend for $25 for once. You know, I have to pay, I think, $80 to bring a friend. It's pretty crazy. The plurality of their revenue comes from the 234 owned company stores. Uh, So uh, here's the other crazy stat. Okay, actually, let me ask you this. Okay, 80% of Americans over the age of 14 don't belong to a gym. So they're like, this, we have a really big TAM. They tell their franchisees that they have to purchase fitness equipment from them every five to seven years. Let me ask you that. This is a crazy question. I'm going to give you a hint as a result of asking the question. What percentage of revenue do you think is derived from credit cards versus cash? Like, oh, well, let me not ask this as a question. 85% of their subscription revenue is paid for by ACH, not credit cards. I think it's actually called EFT. Uh, I think EFT is like, is it EFT? Is that what it's called? Okay, well, I, I guess what I'm saying is 85% is derived not from credit cards. So they don't have to pay the credit card subscription fee or the credit card fee. And they also don't have to worry about credit cards expiring. Or people even just reading their statement and canceling it. That's right. Yeah, because you have to look at your bank statement, not your credit card statement. By the way, have you ever tried to cancel an Equinox membership? Yes, it is I have the formula. Oh, you do? I, would, I, do. I need to hear it. Okay, I just recently did this. Uh, there's two ways. One is the ethical way, and one is the um, kind of shitty way to do it. The ethical way- Let's do the is, shitty way first. Okay, the shitty way is you send an email to cancellations at Equinox, and then you follow up with them, or you track it on Superhuman. You see that they opened it and didn't do anything about it. You take that screenshot, send it to a GM, and let them know that California subscription laws require them to- basically respond and cancel the membership. And that's how my membership just got terminated. And they backdated it back to when I first sent the email. That was a nice win. The other way to do it, which can be harder depending on the color of your skin, is you find an Indian doctor (laughs) and you get them to write you a letter that basically says you've injured your back and you can no longer work out. There's three ways to get rid of an Equinox membership. One is... um, you move more than 50 miles away from the nearest Equinox gym, which is really hard because Equinox is pretty much everywhere that like somebody mm-hmm. like us would live. The second is you lose your job and you show them a, a confirmation that you lost your job. You can never no longer afford it. The third is you have basically an injury with a doctor's note that exempts you from needing a membership. So those are kind of the four ways to get out of it. Wow. I didn't know you needed an excuse. Like This reminds me of these Circuit City commercials where they're like, you're waiting in line to return something like a printer and you're like thinking about an excuse about what to say, <laughs> to, how to lie to them. And the Circuit City was like, you don't need to do this. You can just tell us you don't want it anymore. Or, Boys, this goes back to 
creating friction like you used to do on the returns. Yeah. Create that little bit of friction. Yeah. uh, And it just makes it so much harder for everybody. No one wants to deal with it. Everyone's just. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in our in our last week, Ryan, uh, the podcast, it'll drop the week before uh, this one will drop. We talked about how Amazon's unsubscribe flow or like to, to cancel your prime subscription is called the Iliad flow because it's so hard. They may, they want to make it four, six, 15 steps to cancel rather than make it really easy because, um, you know, you want to create that friction. Okay. Anyway, I appreciate you playing the game with us. Thanks. So, uh, thank you both for doing that. I have a ton of fun getting these ready and a ton of fun being like, what should I reveal beforehand and afterwards to like try and get Nick to guess this correctly? And thank you guys for doing a good job here. Um, okay, let's switch gears and talk about true classic. Should we start with dividing roles, Moise? Sure, I'd love that. All right, so Ryan, we alluded to it a bit before we hit record, but Ben does a phenomenal job, I think, representing the brand and also also just representing, uh, in my opinion, probably the type of talent you want to show on the front lines as you go out and hire for more talent. But we don't know what you do. So how do you guys uh, divide <laughs> the roles and also, as a follow-up to that, like, you know, when did you recognize that having a president would dramatically accelerate the company's trajectory or growth? And then how did you figure out, you know, how to find that person being Ben? Yeah. So let me back up and just give you a little more context to Ben so that this all makes a little bit more sense. We waited way too long to hire. That's number one. I was just asking our team the other day, like, when would we hire our first employee? And it was 13 months, which is just insane. So the three of us founders were doing basically everything in the business, which I don't recommend, but you want to keep your OPEX in low single digits, then that's what you got to do. And anyone that's an entrepreneur knows that you just have to bleed for a long time until things get better. So for a while, we just couldn't afford the Ben Yahalams of the world because Ben didn't come on till like two and a half years after we had True Classic. And it wasn't until about that time that we could really afford a guy like that. So what you want to do is basically get the business in a position where, you know, you have enough, you know, money coming in and cash that you can take these guys with these insane pedigrees and start hiring them and really having them turn the business into a well-oiled machine, which is exactly what he does. Actually, him and I were just talking about this before the podcast. What Ben and I do well is we're both kind of jack of all trades kind of guy, master of none. So When he first came on, it was like a light switch just came on and he was a real force in that first month that he came on. It was like March of 2022. And I remember thinking before when we were kind of negotiating leading up to it, because how it kind of started originally was I wanted somebody, this was probably like month eight or nine of starting Drew Classic. I wanted somebody on the inside of Facebook because I was running the, the media buying. And I'm like, I want someone on the inside that can tell me if I'm doing everything right, if I'm on the latest trends, if I'm running my CBO campaigns correctly. I wanted another set of eyes, essentially. And so I was like, Nick, go find someone at Facebook, you know, someone who who we can pay like a, like a weekly or a monthly retainer, and then he can kind of help watch over the Facebook ads. So that's what we did. We found Ben, we got on a call, and him and I just hit it off right away. We were both cut from the same cloth, and um, we were both marketers. So originally it started out with him kind of just helping me with the Facebook stuff. And then what happened over time was that we developed a friendship and, you know, we stopped talking about Facebook when we get on the calls and we started talking about what we were going to build after True Classic together because we both had such similar ideas. 
And then what happened is, you know, we kept growing, we kept growing. And Ben was part of the disruptors group, as you guys know. And I kept trying to get into that. So that was the other thing. I was like, let's get someone to help us do that. But he kept watching the business just explode. And he kept coming back to me on every call and being like, buddy, you don't understand what's happening. And I, I wouldn't really believe him at first because he's seeing all these big companies explode. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just saying that we're paying him. You know, you can say that. But he kept reinforcing it every time we got on the call. And it took me a while to figure it out, like how special what we were building was. And then we got to the 100 million. And I remember having a dinner with him before we hired him. And he was telling me that like, this has just never been done or he's never seen it done before. And that's when I was like, wow, this has got to be special coming from this guy who has really seen it all and who lives in these worlds all the time. I don't come from that world. I don't come from tech. I come from music and poker and like all these other weird industries. So I was like, what's it going to take to basically get you on board? And we started negotiating and it took a while, but man... And at the time, I didn't understand his value. I was like, yeah, I know this guy's smart. I know he's capable. I know he comes from Facebook and I really like him. But like, dude, that first month that he came in, I remember like it was yesterday. Within a week, he uncovered the open rate. So like, it sounds so silly now looking back, but like the open rate was pretty bad when, when he came on. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. I remember him uncovering this and going, why is the open rate in the 20s, like low 20s. It should be closer to like 40 or 50. That's kind of the standard. And I remember thinking, well, someone had told us that 20-ish was okay. Someone on Clavio's team told us that, right? And he was like, no, man, that's low. Something's going on. And he started digging. And what he uncovered was that we were having massive deliverability issues on email. So he starts figuring out. So he hires this team to come in and basically clean up. Everything we were, all the emails we were sending were going straight to spam. And so... He uncovered this big email issue. And as everyone knows, email is the entire EBITDA game for us specifically. And so that first month was like a rocket ship because he started turning that around and it went from 20 to 50 in about three or four weeks. And dude, we started printing money out of that because- Do you remember what some of the things were that changed? I mean, all of a sudden email was like really working at a high level. That's really what it was changing. I mean, the whole thing just started really printing profits in that first month. And we were also not segmenting, right? We were doing a really terrible job. Like we were just spamming the whole list every email, right? Like you're not supposed to do that. You're really supposed to segment out like top 90 uh, day engagements, uh, people that haven't purchased in the last 180 days, and you start going down these different paths. And so- that was a huge eye-opening moment for us. And that was when I saw the difference between kind of hiring a guy to consult and then hiring a guy of that level to come into your business and work all day. The value was just like off the charts. And after that, it completely changed the way I saw these guys. And I was just like, Matt, talking to my founder, we have got to get more guys from Facebook or we just need to start like really looking at these high predator guys and and making it work because I had a little bit of a salty taste in my mouth with guys that came from Harvard, guys that came from these really well-educated spots because I just didn't like how they came off. They would come into the business and they would think they know everything about everything. Everyone acts like they're smarter than you. And then it just rubbed people the wrong way. So I had a little bit of an issue with it originally, but you got to just find the right guys is what it all came down to. So to answer your question, I know I went off on a tangent there, but to answer your question, the way we divide and conquer now 
is I mainly focus on creative. I focus on making sure that we're creating stuff that is really resonating with the customer and that we're not getting too bogged down with being vanilla and generic, just like everybody else. I'm always kind of like thinking about how to make an emotional impact on people. And that's where the comedy stuff came from. So I'm working a lot in the comedy stuff currently. Greg Tube and I are doing a lot of stuff together. Obviously, we always have over the years. So I focus a lot on that. I also focus a lot on culture and making sure that I'm, I really have my ear to the ground with, you know, making sure that everyone's happy. And, you know, the fastest way out of this company is for you to come in and start guns blazing. I know everything, telling, you know, bossing people around, being a dictator, you're out of here quickly. And I don't care where you came from or what you did. If you disrupt this culture, it's over for you. And one thing I'll say about that is that every person that we've had to really let go that was a killer that I was so excited about when we first got them, the one most consistent trait that they all had was a complete, utter lack of awareness, 100% across the board on all of them. And what that does when you have a lack of awareness is you don't know how you come off. You don't know how you treat people. And no one's there to really call you out on it until it's too late. And every one of these people that we fired, when we fired them, they were clueless. They had no idea that it was coming, right? And it speaks to the lack of awareness because they don't, they don't have high EQ. They just don't. And so they're good at what they do. But man, if you don't know how you come off to the world, you're going to have a rough go of it, right? It's just the way it is. The other, the other thing that comes to mind too on the same topic is I feel like the couple of people I've had to let go of, they don't have a business acumen. They don't understand how their role plays into the overall business or what their, you know, the implications of their role doing really well or their role not being done really well, how that impacts the business. And also, I think the culture is such a great point. I mean, I feel like some of the companies I've worked at have just had horrible culture. And then I think about the team I have today and like nobody's ever left this team. It's been three or four years now. Nobody's ever left. And I truly think the culture is what makes us so bulletproof against whether it's clients that are insane or even just requests or, you know, things we want to try that are completely out of line or completely outside the coloring lines. And I think it all comes back to culture being so tight and the trust being so high and the shared vision of ambition and efficiency. And so that was actually one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is like, I feel like this company has grown so fast. There is zero chance a company like this can grow at your speed without having just the tightest culture. And also you as a CEO having such a good pulse on basically finding problems within the culture before they become problems that affect more than one person. And so tactically, what do you do for that? Is it like, a, yeah. Uh, and like one example is, the Mary Ruth founder said he calls every one of his direct reports every week for four minutes and just says, what's the biggest thing that is on your mind this week? And he tries to figure out how to solve for that. But what are some of the things you do around culture that you think have allowed you to build such a bulletproof culture where not only are people excited to go above and beyond in their roles, but also I think it becomes very attractive from the outside to want to join the team as well. Absolutely. So there's two really big things. Number one, so I was thinking one day, this was probably six months ago. I'm like, how can I tip people in Slack? I wish I could like see a great comment or a great message and then just like tip them a Starbucks, right? I was like thinking about how do I do that? I started digging into like apps and I found this app called Matter. 
and it's uh, you give what's called kudos. This is going to be such a great hack for your listeners. So what I basically created was this system in Slack where you use this app and you set everything up and it all has to align to the core values. And I'll talk about those in a sec. So the app is essentially you go into this kudos channel and you say, hey, Brianna, you have exemplified executing like a pro, right? Which is one of our core pillars. And you can give her, you get all the employees get a certain amount of coins per week, like true classic coins, and you can redeem them for actual dollars, right? So everyone gets 250 coins a week and they go away. So you're forced to give them away every week, which really incentivizes people to go. And obviously like the executives can just like unload boatloads of coins on people if something really great happens in the company. And so what he did is it allowed everyone to pat each other on the back, but instead of just like, hey, good job, it's like, no, 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 here's cash. Now you can buy Uber Eats, you can go to Sephora, like the girls use it for whatever they want, the guys use it for whatever they want, and it has become a game changer because every single day that channel is lighting up and everyone's giving each other credit and everyone's throwing these coins around and congratulating each other. And so what we did, you can basically do it on any pillar you want, we have five pillars at this company that we live and die by. And this goes to your other point, Nick, about like what makes it bulletproof. You have to do a really good job of identifying what are the core values of the company. So for us, it was it's five of them. Number one, it's going fast. That's the first one. Go really fast. And that's what True Classic stands for. Not to say you're going to be reckless, but you need to be really mindful that we are a startup and we have to move quickly. We don't have a lot of time to sit on pieces of software that we're going to dilly-dally for like three months and like decide not decide like, no, we're just going to try it. We're going to move, right? That's moving fast. So the second one is uh, executing like a pro, which just means really do the best job that you possibly can and follow through with what you're going to do. So that's a big one for everyone in the company. You just got to really be thoughtful about all the work that you're doing and making sure that you're using the best information that you can to make the best decision. The third one is moving the needle. And to me, that's what really creates value for the company. Like Paige, who also came from Facebook, came in and in month one, she added, you guys have heard of uh, Rocket, right? R-O-K-T. And so yeah. she came in and implemented that in checkout and it added like 4% to the bottom line overnight. You want to talk about moving the needle? That's what we like to do here because everyone can kind of create busy work for themselves and do things, but we really reward people for moving the needle and making an impact. For somebody like Paige who comes in, how do you set them up for that? Do you tell them, hey, these are the top level results that you need to hit every year? Or like, how does that work? Do you kind of give them free reign to come up with a plan and then you poke holes in it? We do that now. Like when she started, no, we we weren't really goaling everybody to the same stuff. But that's what we are moving towards now, to your point, is like we're trying to figure out these high level goals that everyone can kind of be aligned to, whether it's a combination of, of, of revenue and EBITDA or whatever it is. But she really just came up with this on her own. This was just pure curiosity. And how can I add a quick win right away without doing too much dev work or doing anything like this was just add this snippet of code and boom, it was done. So she was really just trying to find the low hanging fruit of how to make an impact right away. But yes, we are getting better at kind of trying to align the goals of the company to the goals for each individual employee and kind of have a separate P&L for everyone at the company in their department that, so they can really just own that, right? And just be like, this is, these are my numbers. This is what I need to focus on. And then you can kind of you know work things accordingly. 
so the fourth one would be uh, be creative. And that's obviously a big one for me. And, and that's why we are really able to stand out in such a commoditized industry. So find ways to be creative. And it just doesn't come down to creative. That's the thing that people lose focus about. Creativity plays into contract negotiations. It plays into how you try to get the most out of your vendors. You have to be creative, right? You have to find ways to provide value to the vendor so that they actually want to work with you. And by the way, if they're great, and we have a really good relationship with them, then they're of course going to go above and beyond. Like Alex from Postscript is a great example of this. This guy, you guys know him well. He is a great guy, great founder, has a great product. And we're moving away from Clavio because we Clavio has not done a great job of having reps that really work with us and we feel good about. So, you know, we're getting creative and we're finding partners that are we actually know and we know will go to bat for us when shit breaks. So creativity, again, it bleeds into every part of the business, even logistical. There's creative ways that you can move things that make things more efficient or more profitable. So be creative is just kind of a through line across the board. Um, it also plays into customer service, right? People forget how amazing of an opportunity is when people are struggling and pissed off about something that you can be creative and go, hey, by the way, I see you're in Boston and then you know, they get a signed jersey from Jalen Brown three weeks later because they were so pissed off. That's being creative and really making an impact on somebody. And then they tell that story forever, right? So we we employ our customer service team to do these surprise and delight things all the time so that we can just continue to make an impact and be super intentional. And then the last one, which is the most important in my opinion, is leading with empathy. So this is what we live and die by. And this is what I was talking about, about the people that we end up letting go who just don't understand how all-time EQ needs to be. It needs to be literally the number one. I don't care if you have high IQ, you need to have a high, really high EQ in this particular business. To me, it's, it's absolutely everything about retaining people. And the more you show empathy to them, the more they show empathy to each other. And then when people come in and they don't show empathy, you better believe that bubbles up very quickly. And people start letting me know like, hey, this person, you know, it's just, they're being disrespectful. They're not, you know, whatever it is. So leading with empathy across the board, in my opinion, is the strongest thing that you can do as a leader because it just, it bleeds into your customer, it bleeds into your employees, it bleeds into your mission. It's just so important. And I think it just gets largely overlooked because we're always just trying to hit numbers and do better and be more efficient. But the empathy part is what differentiates true classic from everybody else. By the way, creative empathy. How, how do you create empathy in your creative? Well, you go and you can make creative that makes people laugh, right? Because you're actually thinking about the customer. You're not just trying to sell something to them. You're thinking to yourself, how can I just make their day better? Well, I'm going to create stuff that actually makes them feel better. And people aren't thinking that way. They're just thinking, I got to sell. I got to make my numbers. The ROAS has to be two to one for me to make money. I got to figure this out. I got to go from 2.1 to 2.6. I got to be super tactical. No, you can really just be great at creating funny stuff. Or if you don't want to do comedy, just create something super informative, right? Yeah. Like I remember early on, I created this and it was a little egregious at the time. It, did, it, feel, it felt a little weird, but I remember thinking, why is nobody putting size, uh, height and weight on the images of people that are wearing clothing? Why aren't we doing that? Because it was awkward. And obviously this works for men and not women. And once we started putting that on there, 
people were blown away in the comments. They're like, this was so helpful. This was so great because here I am staring at this guy and I have no idea what size he is. That's me, right? Like I'm, I'm 175, 6'2", so I'm going to buy that now. And so it just goes back to like the thoughtfulness. I love that so much. Uh, one of the things we talked about on last week's episode was very similar to what you're saying, which is there's become such a, you know, as the, the barrier to entry has gotten lower in the e-commerce and CPG space, increasingly we see more and more just copycats or, and not necessarily just copying products, although I think that's a lot more prevalent, but I think even just laziness when it comes to, you know, like, okay, we got to run ads. Cool. Let's make sure we have three of these and two of those. Cause that's what I read is the best practice. And there's really no innovation or creativity that comes to the table. And when I think about the same thing, like whether it's, you know, coming up with some strategy for a brand or it's me just working on the business of Sharma Brands, I realize that a lot of my best thinking and creativity comes when I am basically just sitting in silence and starting to question things or just like surfing the web and starting to learn things as I'm surfing. But it's very hard, I feel like, to schedule that creative time. So my question is basically, it feels like you've almost mastered this art of, you know, it's like when somebody can fall asleep right away, I can't do that either. But how do you set that up? And it can be completely answered in any way, but like, how do you set yourself up to go and pull that creativity out and spend the time toward it? And it doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, what do you do to get into flow state? But is that something you require your, you know, department heads do on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? Is there any structure to that? Like how, how would you teach somebody to be a bit more like, uh, you know, creative? It is a weird thing. I've noticed that it doesn't come natural for a lot of people. And the more you are kind of like a logistical operator, the harder it is. Because those guys are just all expert problem solvers. They just don't have the creative muscle of their brain being developed all the time. Because I, I grew up thinking I was going to do music forever. So I had been building this muscle since I was like seven years old, right? Like it comes very natural to me. But you really just got to spend the time and the energy to sit there and dedicate. Like you said, it's hard for people to just be alone in their thoughts for a period of time. You really got to sit there in silence and just sit there with a blank piece of paper and just start jotting down ideas and start working backwards from what you think the customer should ultimately feel about your business and really take the product out of it completely. I think a lot about this stuff and I think people get trapped in thinking, like imagine it's a blank, we're, we're talking about painting for a second. And they just walk in the room with a bucket of green paint and they sit down and that's all they have. They just, they paint the green on the canvas and then they walk out and they show somebody and the person's like, mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. But it's just because everyone thinks for some reason when it comes to digital ads, they can just get away without being creative. We're living in a time where everyone's just doing the same stuff. So what's great about being creative is you instantly stick out when you create something great because 90% of the market is completely mailing it in on creative. So what I would say is that businesses need to start really going deep on people that are creative thinkers, and we need to hire a lot more of them. I think that everyone gets like one or two guys and they're like, yeah, I figured it out. We're creative. It's like, no, no, no. You need to over-index on this because you have no idea how much it'll pay dividends later for you. It helps also that 
in my position that I am creative first because I let so many ideas go through that most people would just never entertain. And I'm a huge risk taker. So I can see in corporate America why that would be very difficult. And you have to go through a hundred layers of red tape to get something to push through. But um, having your leaders really lead with creativity in so many ways helps that machine just keep going. It's a very difficult thing though. And that's why nobody's doing like by and large, it's hard for people to do it right. Like you see some companies doing comedy and it's it's just cringeworthy because nobody has that guy internally to go, hold on a second, this is not good. I don't know who told you that this is gonna do well, but you need those people internally. Like I get creative all the time across my desk and I'm just like, this ain't it, right? And I put a stop to it and I don't let it go out. But if you don't have that in the company, if you don't have that guy who can have that creative vision or that creative director, if you want to call it, like in terms of a position, so much is going to get through and people just aren't going to be feeling it at all. So you've got to have at least one or two people in there that can be insanely objective about how you want to come across to the world and the kind of content that you want to create for people. And it's very difficult and it's very nuanced. And if you're going to go into comedy, you better come really correct. Like you better be Saturday Night Live next level sketch writing type stuff, or it's just going to be cringy and, and it's not going to do well with the customer. Nick, you know what I really love about Tapcart is you can constantly update your mobile app to reflect the season or environment that your site is in. So if you're running like a Black Friday sale and you have like a new hero image, super easy to do that in the app. It's not like a static thing where you load it once and it never changes again. You're launching new products, you're doing a July 4th sale, you can update the header really easily. You can update the look of the site to reflect the sale that you're doing. It's Black Friday, you wanna make a big splash. You can do that all in the Tapcart app and they make it really easy for you to be able to update your app without a bunch of like headache and a bunch of getting your CTO involved or something to that effect. It's all self-serve, it's really fast. And I love that about them. Yeah, the other thing is pairing that with the discovery piece. I feel like one of the biggest things that happens during any sale is actually the the lack of awareness about a sale or the the lack of discovery by custom their own customers that a sale is going on. And so using Tapcart to one, have real estate on somebody's uh, home screen, but also two, have the push notification capability, that plus being able to merchandise your app around a sale, I think creates for a powerful promo experience. Pretty amazing. And to learn more, go to tapcart.com slash limited. Give me an idea of like uh, something creative that you let by or like you approved or greenlit that I think other, you, you think that other companies wouldn't approve. So in the beginning, I was way more risky and I would let stuff through where Greg was like smacking Nate in the face and like doing physical violence, which for guys, we actually think that's pretty funny, right? But what happened was we forgot that like a good piece of our revenue comes from women. So women were like, what the heck, guys? Like, why are you guys? And we would have some ads where the girl would be talking down to the guy. Like she would be like, my fat bastard of a husband, blah, blah, blah. And we thought it was hilarious. We're like, yeah, he is acting like a fat, but right. But like how that came off was that we were really speaking down to men and even men pushed back on that particular one. So we started getting away from that. And ultimately what I wanted to do, I realized that you can't just create comedy at all costs, right? Like there has to be a balance of 
and making people feel good, but not crossing the line. And that's difficult because when you're creating ads, you want the max engagement. So making stuff that's controversial actually does work in your favor for the algorithm in the short term. But the blowback of those comments can really have a rippling effect on the business. So you have to walk this line of not going too far and touching those hot button topics too often, but also creating something that's going to get people talking. But maybe not necessarily in a super negative way, but getting them talking about how hilarious it is in a positive way so that you can get more out of your ads and lower that CAC because that's all we want at the end of the day. We just want it all those numbers to keep blending down. And let me just tell you something. For those of you that are out there that have not created a piece of content that explodes, it is a game changer and you will chase that high for the rest of your life. Because when I saw it happen for the first time and I watched that nine to one hit in the morning and I was so blown away with what CAC was like 20 bucks, I'm like, this is the game. And I started reading the comments and seeing how great the feelings were in the comment that's when the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, this is what we're doing forever now because now I see this is a game of just feeling and not so much selling. And I made that pivot and man, was that a game changer for us moving forward. I want to talk about hiring, but before we talk about that, is there a formula for that, you know, that high of something going viral or is it really just, you know, you throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and finally something sticks? Part of it is that we've done it long enough now to where we've just learned what works and what doesn't for us. We do keep like a historical record of like, okay, we've tried this. That didn't really work. We yeah. tried this. This worked. Can we reiterate on that and make it better? Kind of like the tube yeah. science model. So we definitely have tried everything and yeah. failed at a lot of stuff. But every failure, as you know, is just a stepping stone towards learning something about it and getting better along the way. So it's... It, Comedy is not for everyone. It's a very difficult thing. And what I would say to the people who don't do comedy is just make it the most informative and educational that you possibly can and get away from trying to just be the cool guy at. Everyone is tired of the guy walking in the park with his shirt or his apparel looking cool. No one cares about that guy anymore, right? Like, what are you going to do to make that guy stand out ultimately? Well, I feel like... um the mini katanas of the world are like, hey, we do have a little bit more information than a lot of other people in terms of how to make things viral. And I've seen a bunch of startups try and approach me and say, hey, we're raising money. We understand the formula of how to make things viral. And I always come to that with a huge grain of salt because I'm like, maybe yeah. you got two videos viral. You've not gotten 50. And if you're really good at this, you have gotten 50. And you know, oh, you have a little bit of understanding today. And that understanding might change three weeks from now when people are like, this is not what's interesting anymore. Like this thing on TikTok is hot right now, but it will not be three weeks from now. Yeah. Uh, let me take one more step back uh, and talk about hiring. You know, when you were looking for Ben and uh, some of the other people, like you mentioned for Ben, for, uh, for example, you're like, I'm looking to hire someone from Facebook. Were you going through LinkedIn to find people? Were you going through a recruiter to find people? Give me a little bit more information about your first two steps in terms of finding a few of your uh, critical hires. We've never used recruiters. They are insanely expensive. So my co-founder, Nick, is a monster on LinkedIn recruiting. He is an wow. absolute killer on there. And he just pumps out volume. And he gets directly to people through in-mails, right? Like he just hits them up directly. And what do we? so what we do is we figure out what role we want. Like what's the role that we're after? And then Nick goes out and looks for the best in the D2C space first. 
Because what we found, and for like, for instance, when we were trying to hire a CMO, it was insane. We were getting really high level. I'm talking like humongous company CMOs and they would come in and they would sit down and we'd start firing D2C questions and they would be like a deer in headlights. They, yeah. We'd be like, what's, what's the most important metric uh, that you would look for on a website to kind of diagnose or to figure out a growth path? And they would be like, um, so time on site is pretty important that we look at and we, Ben and I would be looking at each other like, what is happening? They don't even know like the basics of D2C. So what we started doing is basically throwing that in the trash and saying, forget CMO, forget traditional CMO. That is not us. We are a, gro we need like a growth CMO. Is there a such role as that? Or are we just going to have to create this? Right. And so what we started doing was thinking about the business and what the business needed. We don't need some high level thinker or CMO to do some brand initiatives that they aren't going to be able to measure, by the way, and even quantify. So what we need is someone who is like a, a growth person, but in a kind of CMO type of role. So we started reverse engineering what the business actually needs and then going against the grain and what the traditional markets would hire for those positions because it just didn't fit us. And we had to go through like 15 CMOs to figure that out. I had a similar experience at Native where some, the CEO of like, uh, or not the CEO, like a high level executive at a beauty company was interested in working for us. And we like, you know, I was like, okay, great. We need somebody like you We're growing. And she's like, okay, I'm going to come in. I'm going to need a team of seven people. I'm going to be doing these things. And I was like, uh, I don't think you understand what's going on. Like, that's just not who we are. And so it's, crazy because it feels like you have to reinvent the wheel when you're doing something like this because you're like, okay, I need somebody who comes in and understands direct consumer performance marketing, who can build a channel strategy across multiple channels, who understands when to press the gas on YouTube versus when to press the gas on TikTok. And it's really interesting to see how many other brands have dealt with that as well. Like it's not a playbook that, you know, as you're growing and your company's getting so large, you're like, great, I need somebody from Levi to join my company. And you, you're like, okay, actually that person who's the CMO of Levi, would destroy my business. And I think, you know who did a good job of explaining this, uh, Nick? It was um, Ty Haney from Outdoor Voices. She's like, we brought yeah. on Mickey from J. Crew, you know, the CEO of Gap, the CEO of J. Crew as the chairman of our board. And he and I just had different visions where he's like, you need brick and mortar stores and I want community. And those are sort of the, op like those things clash. And when we only have a finite amount of dollars, we have to pick our priorities. And so somebody had to leave because we weren't able to prioritize what we, how we wanted to grow. In terms of compensation, do you start talking about equity? Do you talk talk about percentage of EBITDA? Do you, and not just with Ben, but generally with high-level executives, how do you think about compensating them in a way that makes sense? Where they're like, I want to do the right thing here as well. Like, I want to get rid of low-performing talent. I don't want 20 people that report to me when five of them are holding their own weight. Do you think of that as from a perspective of EBITDA, from a perspective of shares and options or grants? How do you think about that? And how, how do you come up with that for the first five people when you're growing really quickly and there isn't necessarily a market for, like, you know, there isn't a menu of prices for something like this and other companies? I mean, originally it was really hard because we had never really hired those kind of talent levels. So we were just giving insane amounts of cash comp and equity from the pool that we have. And, you know, looking back, we have had to buy people out. We've, we've really like learned the hard way on that stuff. And as we grow, you know, Ben's done a really good job of coming up with this calculator that he's built 
where um, he structures all the deals within this framework of this calculator. Because what we did was we dialed it in to be able to show the employee, you know, if you have this and you can create this amount of value, here's what you're like expected to make based on all of our calculations, which is a phenomenal way to do it because then it, it keeps us accountable and then they know exactly what they're getting and it's not a big mystery. But to answer your question, for these high-level guys, it's always a pretty significant combination of both cash comp and equity. And you know, it really depends. Are they in it for the long term or are they not? That's a really good indicator, by the way, when somebody's negotiating heavy on the cash and low on the equity, guess what? They're probably not sticking around for more than a year, max two, if they're lucky, because they already, they're basically telegraphing that they're not in it for the long haul. So what we try to do is get people in where it's, there's more on the back end so that they stick with us and that, you know, listen, there's always cash bonuses you can pay out later anyway. So even if the cash is smaller on the front, you can compensate them later. And as you said, you can make it a percentage of EBITDA and you can align that to the company so that if that's moving up, then everyone's getting paid more, which is a great way to do it. That's how we're thinking about things now. We're starting to go back and really look at it and go, okay, how do we just make this so that everyone in the entire company is aligned for the same goals and the same missions so that we're all on the same page? That's the real goal. Now, that is much easier said than done because the pushback would be, well, if I start doing this for more EBITDA, that's not necessarily better for the company. That's really just better for my self-interest and it could affect this and that. And so there's a lot of arguments you made and a lot of nuance there, but um, it's a big combination of both for these high-level execs. And these negotiations are not easy. They could go on for months for these top guys, but it's worth it. It's also so hard because you sort of get to know somebody and you have no idea what their comp uh, expectations are until you're a little bit further down the road than you would have expected. You know, you can't be in a, maybe you can in a first meeting be like, what are your comp expectations? And if someone throws out $750,000, you're like, okay, this isn't going to work. But I feel like with high level executives, you often want to be like, it's almost a little like dating where you want to get to know them a little bit before you pop the question of like, what is this compensation package going to look like? And sometimes you guys are just in different arenas. Maybe you guys are, I felt that way sometimes at Native where I was like, wow, this person thinks that I'm a publicly traded uh, business. And in fact, I'm running a much smaller P&L here. No, we actually do have that conversation up front now. Because, really? Okay, yeah. Be, because I'll tell you why. Because what we found was that we would spend all this time and energy talking to these people and we would get halfway down the road and then they would go, we want $5 million. And we'd be like, all right, well, that was all for nothing. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, call us, you know, yes. we'll call you when we're doing billions, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started having that conversation very early. And that's even before, oh, here's another good tip, tactical advice for you guys and your, your, your listeners is that hiring is such a difficult thing. As we all know, this is not talked about very much, but it's one of the things that Ben and I struggle a lot with because we invest so much time and energy in, into the hiring process and then they just bounce or they renegotiate their contract at the other company. They're like, yeah, I'll sign with you guys. And then they come back and go, sorry, they gave me a bonus and, and, a, and a, yeah. a title upgrade. So uh, catch you on the flip side. And we're like, awesome, thank you. But what we make people do now, and this helps mitigate where you get them in and, they, and they're just like a deer in headlight, we do homework assignments with them. And when these are not easy homework assignments. These are like, I want you to forecast the next two years. Tell me how you would take a million dollars and split that. And how would you quantify it? What does that look like? Now, give me a real game plan. 
And so we do that with like three or four candidates as you get down to the final ones. And then the three of them will present to us. The whole board essentially will sit there in the conference room and they'll present their homework assignment. And let me tell you, that has saved us so much time and energy and money not getting the right person or, you know, getting the, the wrong sure. person in and then having to like figure out how to get them out is an absolute nightmare that you can avoid by doing these homework assignments where you really put them in a position where they got to do some real work up front. And by the way, they might just drop off for the second year. Like, okay, do this homework assignment. Sometimes they're like, nah, I'm out of here. I'm not doing that. And then, you know, you got it right. Right. Cause they're not even willing to do that little bit of work. And it just shows you what their work ethic was actually going to be like once they got in. So it's helped us tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had people be like, you have to pay me to do this homework assignment. And I'm we actually like, do pay the them. Job. You do? We do pay them. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What do you pay them? It's not a crazy amount, but yeah. it's definitely makes it worth their time. Yeah. That's awesome. We don't do it with everyone, by the way. We don't do it like on like a hundred percent. It's more like director level plus. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. It's awesome. We tend to do that a lot for uh, any creative talent as well. Like we'll we'll give them a paid assignment. So for video editors, they have to produce two to five videos. And for designers, they have to produce landing pages and site pages. I have a, a fun exercise we could do. So I want to tell you both how I hire and I would love your additions or subtractions to this process. Does that work? Okay. Yep. So step one is we threw out job descriptions. Instead, we implemented basically a two-part a role ad or something. And it's basically part one. It says exactly the type of person we're looking for for this role. A lot of times based on the role, you already know if you're, you're looking for somebody who's willing to put in a Friday night when they need to, or who's willing to work late, or somebody who might need to travel or whatever it may be. And so we put those caveats at the top. That way, kind of similar to yours, it's like there's no non-upfront expectations that are that are said. And the second part is what we call the results. And that's ideally what somebody has to check off or cross off this list at every week, every quarter, every month, or every year. And crossing off those by the end of their year basically determines whether or not they have a promotion coming up. So we have this. The second part is when people say they want the role, we send them to a Google sheet, a Google form. And we've got the top three results that basically ladder up towards the company's needs. And we say, tell me about a time that you produced this exact result. Tell me exactly who was involved. How did it happen? What were the resources you had access to? What went right? What went wrong? And what were the tools? And uh, that does two things. One, it weeds out people who are not willing to put the work in, which I think is amazing. The second thing is that it weeds out people who are bad writers. And I do think that people who understand how to write and communicate, even if they're just short answers, makes a huge difference in their ability to work later. And the last thing it does is it makes sure somebody's following directions. If somebody's talking about something and they don't include any of the things, it's an obvious sign that they don't have good attention to detail, which is generally something that every role here needs. Then the third part is you know, if answers are good, we get on the phone and then we'll give them a homework assignment, kind of like you said. So if we're hiring a recruiter, we'll say, okay, our plan's to hire X amount of people. Give us the plan that you would execute if you take this job and then come present it to us. And then if they pass that, the last step we have is basically, I come up with reasons why if I was in their spot, I wouldn't take this job at all, which also kind of tells them up front, like, uh, like I'll give you an example for one of the early hires at Hooks, I was like, look, your entire life is going to be consumed by this. 
and you're not going to have probably a two-day free weekend for the next six months, that's why I wouldn't take this role. You're also going to have to be working early mornings, late nights. You might be on the, on the phone all day. And if you're okay with that, then we'll go ahead and extend an offer to you. So that's kind of the hiring process we've built out here. I'm curious what you guys think. Wow. I love that last part where you're like, here are reasons you should not take this job is great because it's basically like, it reminds me of that Zappos thing, which is like uh, Zappos had this thing where they're like, we're going to train you. And after training, we're going to offer you $10,000 to quit this job today or some uh, obscene amount of money. Because they're like, if you don't want to be here, take this money and go. Uh, yeah. No problem. Like you you now know what the business is going to be like. Maybe it's not a good culture fit. Maybe you, you, know, you just don't want to do this anymore. Just take the money and go. I love that idea of being like, let me tell you why you shouldn't work here. It's hard when you're a really small business and you're the CEO and you have to interview this person and sell this person. And then afterwards, you have to be like, this is why you can't take this, why you shouldn't take this job. The benefit that you've got, I think, Nick, is you've got a few other people who are sort of selling the business. And then when they come to you, you're like, okay, let me give you the real deal and what I'm going to expect from you. So you only have to play like, you can play devil's advocate as opposed to also being the salesman. And I think that's super powerful there. I will say, I feel like I've it's shifted from me trying to sell people on why they should take the role to me almost approaching it and being just super transparent of like, here are all the things that are going to suck about this job. That way, when you come in, there's no there's no question of, oh, wait, I don't know if this is a part of the role or, uh, you know, I didn't think that I was going to have to be working, you know, Friday nights. I thought there was a summer Fridays. That is so important. And that took us a long time to figure out too, just to double click into that specific thing is that the more upfront you are, the more they'll appreciate you down the line. Because we've had people come in and we didn't tell them that like there might be a fire drill on a Saturday. Sorry, we're a startup. Things break. Things happen. We got to move fast. And sorry that I'm pinging you at 9 a.m. on a Saturday when you expected to be you know, out and about doing whatever you wanted. But it's just the reality of the game. So what we try to do, Ben and I, is we try to scare the shit out of them. We're basically like, this is going to be really, really difficult, just so you know what you're getting into. And so that when they get in, it is not like, what? You guys didn't say we had to work on a set. Like, what has happened? And then we're like, great, now we got to unwind this. So to your point, I think that's brilliant. I think it's so important to be honest with people because all the good stuff is there. And yes, they'll get the accolades and they'll build their resume and build their career. Good job. But like what ultimately matters to the people that are working for you is what's going to happen when it's bad and what's going to happen when it gets tough. And then what does that actually look like? The only other two things that I would say that I can offer value to your process is number one, what I continually see everybody do on job descriptions is make them too broad and have too many bullet points. So what I'm doing is I'm going back and I'm consolidating and I'm saying, okay, this job description has nine bullet points. Like you've got to be kidding me. There's no way you really expect these nine bullet points to really encompass. Like it really comes down to like three. So you need to consolidate and go back to the drawing board. I'm like, did they really need to have all of this? Because what you're doing is you're not making, you're not defining the position well enough, in my opinion. Like what are the three that are actually going to make this position work the best that it can for the company? So I'm going back and I'm reanalyzing a lot of our JDs and I'm refocusing them. And by the way, now when we send them out, we get the kind of talent we're actually looking for versus the generic guy who kind of does nine different bullet point type things. And he's a little bit too nonspecific. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is that 
we don't put ads out anymore. We used to do that. The best way to hire is to go get the person you want, right? You go and you do the research. Which company do I want to emulate? Which person do I want? You go find that killer. You don't just wait for them to show up one day. Because let me tell you something, the best people are not looking for jobs and they are definitely not looking for ads for a job and then spending their time applying. They are sitting there with their head down and they are working and they're being killers because that's what they're, they're there to do. And so you got to go get those people and everyone's fair game. Everyone tries to take our employees all the time. And guess what? It's a free market. People can do whatever they want. If they're unhappy, they're going to leave. And you don't want them working for you anyway if they're unhappy and they don't want to be there. So, you know, we go after the killers we want and, you know, we make a good case on why you should be with us. That's amazing. I love all. Yeah. I love that you said uh, we have, we go and headhunt. Like we are looking for scalps to bring into uh, our organization. The best guys are not like, let me talk to every company and go on LinkedIn and Indeed. The best guy at Google is not doing that. Exactly. Everybody knows he's the best guy and like all of his friends are trying to poach him already at different startups. All the other teams inside Google are already trying to poach him. That is such a great point. Yeah. Okay. If we switch some gears here, uh, I would love to know just from a a different CEO's hat that you wear, uh, when you think about like the company growth and the company valuation, how do you think good retention as a function of your marketing org impacts the company's valuation in this industry of e-commerce? It's the whole thing. I mean, especially now, just driving revenue at all costs is a thing of you know the past. I mean, you talk to these private equity companies and I'm so tired of talking to them because they all just say the same thing. They basically want, they want a long history of EBITDA, period, end of story. And if you're going to get any kind of reasonable valuation these days, good luck with telling them that revenue matters these days. It's really all about history because these guys are very risk adverse, especially in the climate that we're in now. And even a, a company like us on paper is there's like nothing like it right now in the market for these guys. And they still push back and don't want to invest in a true classic because you know they look at us and they're like, well, we're scared because the growth is so crazy. It actually works against us because they're like, well, I don't know what it's gonna what it's gonna look like next year, right? Like, like just give us another five years. And they want to all keep their jobs over there. They don't want to take chances. So it's all about EBITDA these days. And I, I, I for the foreseeable future. Now we try to do a healthy marriage of both. We try to grow top line while also having a healthy margin for the business because you really need that moat for the business. But I would say that we do more than ever. And especially after talking to like 50 of these guys, that it really is a game of EBITDA and retention. So it's important that you go out there and you hire a head of retention that just runs that department and really oversees all the functions within that and how to really get the most out of your email and SMS so that it can really impact the bottom line. Because if you don't have that working for you, I mean, we, as you guys know, we're break even on on new customer acquisitions. So we only make money when they come back. And so, you know, there's obviously a lot of tactics to do that, but what we try to do is really come correct with new categories of products. That's really our retention model is to just keep coming out with great products that provide great value at a reasonable price point. And yes, we definitely overdo it on the emails and SMS. Like we go a little crazy. I'm sure your guys' inboxes are full of true classic promo emails, but the reality is, is that it just works and 
you know, you watch that unsubscribe rate. And as long as it's in check, then you're in a good place. We are trying to figure out a way to kind of give people a frequency preference in their email where you say, okay, I just want to get one email a week because you guys are sending emails every single day and I don't want to miss the promos, but like, this is crazy. You can't just keep texting me every hour, every day, but I want to know about like the big sales. So like, how do I basically implement a system where I can email them and say, Hey, here's how you customize your preferences. So we're working on that solution now. For some reason, it's difficult, I guess. I don't know why. It seems pretty easy to me, but we're trying to really find that balance for the customer so that we're not pummeling them. But yeah, to answer your question, it's the whole game, period, end of story. And when we think about valuation now, it's all just about, here's where we're going to land for the year. Here's where we you know, want to be around. You know, we're probably going to exceed that. Hopefully we're not even looking at term sheets right now and for the foreseeable future, because we know Q4 is going to be such a monster that if we try to take a valuation now, it's not going to be what we want. So we're already just like, I'm not even taking calls anymore. Like the last couple of months, I talked to everybody, talk to JP Morgan, you talk to all the PEs and there's deals to be made, but they're not good deals. You know, they're, they're going to be like half the valuation you want. There's, they're going to be heavily structured they're not going to be in your favor. So you only really take money if you absolutely have to. And, you know, thankfully we're profitable, so we don't need the money unless we had like some huge growth initiative. Like let's say we wanted to ramp up retail to like a hundred stores from our five currently, then yes, we would probably need some capital to infuse into the business. But, you know, until that day comes, we're just going to chill. We're going to run the best business we can. And then if there's a deal to be made next year, maybe we do it, maybe we don't. I don't really care anymore, to be honest. I used to be all about the deal and the valuation. And now I'm just like, I just want my customers to be happy. I just want my employees to be happy. And I just want to run the best company I can and stop talking to these guys and wasting all my time with, what's the moat, Ryan? Tell us the moat of your business. And then I got to sit there for 20 minutes and explain to these guys while they all nod and go, this is an amazing business. We'll call you next year. And I'm just like, Dude, this is this is so crazy that I'm wasting all this time and energy on this stuff. And it just boils down to basically nothing. They just want to see the numbers. They just want to take whatever bits they can and apply it to their portfolio of companies, right? Like they kind of try to come in and get the playbook. And I'm like, guys, you can have the playbook. The thing is, it's all about execution. So uh, I'm curious to your earlier point about the emails. Like, how do you give targets for the retention team to hit? Do you tell them like, hey, your target as head of retention means that uh, customer payback is, you know, 60 days from acquisition or are there different types of targets you give them, which they build out their plan from? They definitely have targets. Absolutely. I don't know exactly what the targets that they have are. That would be a Carolina question who is our head of uh, retention. What I'm always thinking about is like, how do we, because we all get emails all day, right? I'm kind of sick of most of the emails that I get. So like, if you saw that one email from Chubby's that was on LinkedIn the other day where they were talking about their worst sellers and they made an email where they were like, here's our top worst sellers and the email just crushed. And what you're seeing there is that people are just so tired of the status quo and they're just inundated with these four out of 10 emails. And they're just, everyone's doing the same thing. And it goes back to the piece that I talked about, about the creativity and how much people are, are hungry for it and thirsty. And even though they were highlighting the worst sellers, it was the biggest email that they ever had, right? Like no surprise. 
it just goes back to being more creative, in my opinion, and the emails and being more thoughtful and giving people what they want. But metric wise, yes, we definitely have things that we're kind of trying to land on for the year. The team has their own kind of internal goals. It's all pretty standard stuff, to be honest. There's not like any kind of secret metrics that we're trying to hit. It's just, you know, make sure the email is as healthy as it can be. And then how can we make it more polished and look great? But also how can we be more tactical with the creative and get people to like, basically, how do we make a subject line that people actually want to click or care about? Because if you blend those subject lines with everything else in your email, it all starts to really look the same. So how do you call things out? Like, here's a good one. We started doing these text emails where it was literally just a block of text. Like, you know, we all do like these big pictures and colorful color and make it look really nice. Just do a block of text and you'd be imagine It's amazing how well that does. In just the little image at the bottom is just a little person, right? Talk and they just, here's, here's a little paragraph of text and those crush. Again, it goes back to like being different and people are tired of the big fancy graphics. Now you still got to do that, obviously. But, um, and you've seen those emails where they're doing like the AI stuff now, right? Like where the co-founders like, hey there, Sam, thanks for making a purchase. And you know, there's, there's cool. I haven't done that yet because I feel like it's, I feel like it's going to like mess up and I'm going to call someone the wrong name and it's going to like become a moment and be super unintentional. So I have yet to do it, even though I love it. Another thing that works on email for a lot of people is these handwritten notes. Have you guys seen this stuff where they can do it at scale? They, they essentially have like, they do it two ways. They have robot hands that actually write the notes. And they also have like a printed version where it looks like handwriting, but it's not. And then you send those out and might we we tested them and they did okay. I think what I was worried about was like, everyone's going to be like, there's no way this CEO is writing these letters. Like, give me a break, dude. So it, to me, it seemed a little too tactical, but I loved it as like a creative differentiator because you just don't see a lot of people doing that stuff. I got one of those handwritten letters recently and I like licked my finger and I was like, is this a real pen or not? And I was like, oh, it is a real pen. I'm like, I'm sure it was a robot doing it. It was not the CEO, but I still liked it. Yeah. It's a good idea and it's thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, you guys, uh, you guys send a lot of people to your mobile app for True Classic. How do you use your mobile app? Do you use it in lieu of SMS sometimes for push notifications or do you use it in lieu of like, you know, do you use do you do anything exclusive for that audience? How do you like treat that cohort? Because I do feel like it's much harder to get people to download the app, but the people that are there tend to be really, really big fans of the brand. Yeah, because the experience is so much easier on an app versus a website. Yes, we definitely when we have a new product coming out, what we do is we have like a VIP cohort where we send out an email to a very small group of like our most active buyers. And that also includes a segment that we've built around, around people that are on the app. So we send an email to them and then it leads them to the app. But we also, to your point, do uh, the push notifications on the app. And those do really well because, you know, they're free. Those are definitely your best customers. There's no question about it because they're already logged in. They can purchase very quickly. It's hard to balance both everything that's on the website and make sure that it perfectly is applicable on the uh, app but we try to do our best. We need to do a lot better job. I wish that we put more focus on it, to be honest with you. It's one of our pain points that we don't make the app experience as good as it possibly could be. We just redid the website, so that was a big focus for us. But now I am taking time to go back to the, the app and really put more attention into it because you're right. 
it's the most loyal customers we have. So we try to treat them a little bit differently and give them more exclusivity. We also say like, hey, if you haven't downloaded the app, we're going to release this product on the app first. So that's a very tactical way to get them to go and download it. So we pretty much do that on every product launch. We're like, hey, if you want it first before it sells out, then you better go to the app because it might just sell out and you might not even, it might not even get to the website. So that's how you drive urgency there to try to get them over there. But um, yeah, the app we need to put more focus on because you're right. It's just, it's such a killer for the audience. Um, it's, it's a good value add. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. I feel like this podcast, in my opinion, I think is my favorite one we've ever recorded. And I feel like I've learned so much more, maybe less on the marketing side, but definitely more as like a CEO's point of view and how you think. And after just talking to you, it seems like it's no surprise that you guys have grown so fast and you've maintained such a good culture and are able to continue building as fast as you can. It's really impressive. Appreciate that, man. I think it's all, one thing just to leave your audience with that I think largely goes unnoticed. And I always say, like, if you go to my LinkedIn profile on the About Us, it just says being intentional. That's all it says. There's no back history. There's nothing else. Because at the core, that's what it really all comes down to. And I don't just mean the product, right? Like, we definitely created a product that is super intentional for the human. But what people don't talk about is how you become intentional on customer service. And like how we talked about earlier about surprising and delighting and being intentional there. And so what does that look like? And then internally with the culture, how do you be intentional? And that's like the matter app that I was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And even in the creative, how do you make it so that it's intentional for the audience? Well, you make them laugh. That's how you create that emotional connection. So it's not one thing. It's everything you do. That It even goes back to the... Um, so we had the EY thing, the Entrepreneur of the Year thing that we had this last weekend. And in my speech, I made sure to figure out a way at the very end to give the audience something of value. Everybody there, you can leave with this. And it wasn't like some inspiring message. It wasn't like, here's a tactic to make your business better. It was, let me give you this. And because what I was thinking was, there's going to be a lot of losers there that are going to be bummed out that they didn't win. So what can I give them that they're going to walk away with that they can actually be like, wow, I can put that in my back pocket. And what I gave was, I said, you know, for all the businesses out there, I want to be your donation arm. You know, if you have an initiative, if you know a family, their house burned down, I want to be the guy you call to say, hey, we, they need clothing, they need something. I basically wanted to offer up us as a clothing donation arm for everyone that's there so they could just wield that how they see fit in the world when they come into situations for either charities or whatever it is. So intentionality, my man, that is the entire game. That is why True Classic is where it's at. It's all about that one word and we live it and breathe it in every facet of the business and that's why we win. Awesome. That was fantastic. Really appreciate that. Appreciate the focus and um, the knowledge that you've dropped today and how great your products are. I'm a huge fan. Uh, so appreciate everything. Also, your new site looks awesome, by the way. Thank you. And I'm a huge fan of you guys. You know, honestly, I think what you guys are creating here is something really, really special. I love your guys' podcast. I think it's insanely informative. I think it's super tactical. I love the guests that you bring on. I think you guys are very thoughtful about what you're creating for the audience because you're not just on here talking about fluff. You're really talking about the things that matter to the people that are listening. And again, it goes back to intentionality. I really see you guys as the two leaders in the D2C space who are just the 
the Yoda and the Obi-Wan Kenobi of this industry who are out here bestowing all the knowledge on everybody. Nick, you're Yoda. Yoda. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. <laughs> but I just, I love what you guys are creating and kudos to you. You guys deserve so much more credit than what you're currently getting on the uh, TikTok algorithm. It shit drives me nuts. I'm watching these insanely useful clips and I'm like, what is going on, dude? These clips, how do we make, how do we blow these up for these guys? Because man, do you guys deserve it. You put so much value into the world. I really appreciate you guys. Really appreciate that. I think like people always ask me, they're like, how many downloads does this uh, podcast get? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. I, that's the one, I never look at any of that stuff because I'm like, I enjoy, I don't think we've ever gotten a report for our analytics. I, I do this podcast on a weekly basis. If there was one listener, I'm like, I don't even care if there's zero. This is a ton of fun for me. And like when people like you come on, Ryan, or Ben comes on, like we learn so much. We become such better entrepreneurs. And so we really appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. Fully, fully agree. Thanks for the uh, the nice words there. I think one thing Moise and I try to do as much as we can is make sure that anything that comes out on this podcast is something where somebody feels like they're learning something new or getting something out of it, and uh, making sure that we're not just uh, again allowing anybody to come on and share their story, which ends up you know sometimes becoming just a sales pitch, but making sure that you know somebody is learning something new that could possibly change their business. Absolutely. Well, appreciate your time. And this is a wrap for season four. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Nick, thanks so much for doing another season with me. Of course. Don't forget to limitedsupplypod.com is our Slack group. You can get in there. Moise and I will be chit-chatting there. And we also, I think Moise, we're finalizing our hire for a community manager this week. And so we're going to have some good programming in there as well. And hopefully again, make it something of value, whether or not you're a podcast listener. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one.